Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Or will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, Say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are in continual awe of your greatness, of your majesty, of your holiness, of your righteousness, of your love and grace and mercy. Father, I pray that this morning as we dig into these words from our Savior in Luke 17, that You would examine our hearts and minds. That You would demonstrate to us our inadequacies, our inabilities. And that You would lead us to look to Christ. For it's only in Him that these instructions can be fulfilled. Lord, it's my sincere desire that this local congregation of believers would be a genuine community of love and grace. It would be evident that we love You first and foremost, and from that, that love with which You first loved us, we would then love one another and bear witness to the truth and reality of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You use this church's testimony, its witness before a watching world, and bear witness to the reality that sinners can be saved by grace. Lord, this is the only means by which we'll be saved. We're thankful that you're that kind of God and full of that kind of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God created man to live in community, to share ideas with one another, to hold beliefs in common, and to participate corporately in worshiping the God who made us. This is God's design from the very beginning. Out of nothing, God created everything in the span of six days. And as we read the historical recounting of the beginning of the heavens and the earth, as recorded in Genesis 1, we're also confronted with God's ongoing appraisal of His own work. Repeatedly, we're told that God saw that what He had made and He saw that it was good. It is this repeated refrain that He saw that it was good that sets up a marvelous contrast when we get to Genesis 2.18 when God says something is not good. In particular, it was Adam's aloneness that was not good. So God plans to provide a helper suitable for him. But only after He makes Adam very much aware of his aloneness, of his distinction from everything else God had made. None of the animals that God created were bone of Adam's bone or flesh of Adam's flesh. Not one of them was a helper suitable to him. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep and taking from Adam's side, he fashions a woman and he presents her to the man. Adam is instantly aware of the similitude between himself and this woman. He cries out, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He calls her woman because she came out of man. 
Adam and Eve were then joined together. We're told that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, it was through this means that God provided for the procreation of the human race. It was through this that God would fulfill the command that He had given to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Note here, a command given to Adam, which he couldn't have fulfilled apart from God having fashioned and provided Eve. This would... This procreation, this this fruitfulness and multiplication and filling of the earth would happen in the context of relationship. We're told then, at the end of Genesis 2, that a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So children enter into this world through a process of leaving one's own parents, cleaving to one's spouse, and then weaving a new family together. It becomes immediately apparent that God has a plan that includes not only our relationship with Him, but a plan that includes our relationship with others who have similarly been made in God's image. There is a solidarity that exists between all people and it has massive implications on all of our actions. None of us are an island. Both our action, and note this, as well as our inaction has tremendous effects and impacts on everyone around us. It's a much larger impact than we might think at first. This is demonstrated by the end of chapter 3 in Genesis. By Adam and Eve's sin, a relationship that was originally created pure and good is now torn asunder. Adam and Eve are now naked and ashamed, whereas before they were unashamed. Now they run and hide The beautiful harmony that existed between Adam and Eve is replaced with fleeing and blame casting and efforts to, as God says as part of the judgment, to domineer one another. The negative repercussions of sin are immediately apparent in Adam and Eve's progeny. Cain kills his brother Abel. And the effects don't end there. As Adam and Eve's children pass on that sinful nature, that sinful disposition, that sinful propensity to their children, and to their children's children, and to their children's children's children, and on it goes. So we're not surprised that when we come into the heart of God providing law to His people, Israel, and we get to this helpful summary of His law, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments, that these Ten Commandments would contain not only straightforward exhortations regarding our relationship with God, but they would also include instructions regarding our relationships with one another. Because to be estranged from God is also to have implications on our relationship with other people also made in His image. The commands, the Ten Commandments are elegant. They're simply stated. They're somewhat easily remembered. Yet, the doing and keeping of the commandments we discover to be impossible. To be impossible. Even those who consider themselves blameless from an external standpoint fail to understand the spirit of the law. It's for that reason that Jesus goes to great lengths to show that should a man think he's done well in keeping the law, he's actually just deceived himself. God's standard, Jesus says, far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The very people that were considered to be literally holier than all of us. Meanwhile, Jesus says, it's not good enough. He goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to proclaim that the prohibition against murder also included hate-filled contempt. You hate your brother. It's akin to the sin of murder. The prohibition against adultery also included lustful thoughts. You see, all the law and prophets could be summarized positively as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Note both of those statements. So if you perfectly kept the law, you would love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of every day perfectly. And that would also have the implication that you loved others as yourself perfectly every day, every moment. Quickly, we come, if we're being honest, to grips with the fact that not only have we failed to keep the standard over the course of our lives, but we failed to keep it even this morning. We're all guilty. The dreadful effects of sin are all around us. It's the easiest of the biblical doctrines to demonstrate, isn't it? 
we see the dreadful effects of sin all about us. In summary, the good world which God had, had made included His design for wondrous, vibrant, loving, harmonious relationships. And that was enjoyed for a little while in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. We were made to live in community with God and one another, but sin's entrance into the world has caused an estrangement between us and God which has had implications on our relationships with one another, which results in all sorts of difficulties and hardships in human relationships. So while something very good is at the basis of our desire to be involved in community with one another, we also know that being involved in community with one another is hard work. There's nothing easy about it. It reminds me of Proverbs 14.4. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. But much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Owning an ox means that productivity increases. Opportunities arise. However, an ox is sure to bring with it its own problems. An ox owner now has a dirty barn. Some shoveling will be required. But you don't get rid of the ox just because it's accompanied with the need for a pooper scooper. Right? We keep the ox. We decide that the removal of the manure is a small price to pay for the ultimate rewards that come from the relationship that is enjoyed with this animal. You don't enjoy cleaning up after the animal, but you see it as a small price in reference to the profitability that the ox brings. Pet enthusiasts understand this principle. Some of you out there love pets, love having them around. And people who love their pets find the maintenance costs associated with their pets small in comparison to the friendship they enjoy with those animals. Now, no matter how much time or energy or money you spend on animal companions, they do not require anywhere near the same amount of resources that human relationships cost. Right? I mean, it might be a little bit of a pain to have to go to the vet and get shots and to buy food and this, that, and the other. But think about how much more is invested in human relationships. How much continual care is required for human relationships to function in a way that is glorifying to God. You see, since we all live in a fallen world and are all ourselves each a reason that this world is so bad, we're sure to find conflict and hardship in relationships. Every form of human relationship has been affected by sin. Be it our relationship with our spouse, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, whether it be with our neighbors or some mere acquaintance, maybe a co-worker or a fellow student, a government official, or even within the same church family. We are going to rub one another wrong, aren't we? We're going to sin against one another. You see, all these relationships involve sinners. Even if we're saved by grace, yet sinners. Sinners saved by grace, but sinners nonetheless. And in relationship with one another, sinners relating to sinners. That's all the formula you need to result in every form of hardship imaginable. It's in the context of relationships that I'm sure all of us have been guilty of. Gossip, deceit, arrogance, insults, laziness, indifference. Covetousness, hate, bitterness, resentment, mistrust, irritability, condescension, haughtiness, greed, selfishness, dishonesty, unfaithfulness, abuse, control, strife, slander, immorality, and betrayal, to name just a few. In fact, due to the fall, those kinds of behaviors are a sort of home base for us, right? We didn't have to receive much training in order to engage in those things. We've used the illustration before. Children don't need to be trained how to lie, do they? They don't have to be trained how to be dishonest, how to be selfish, how to be arrogant, deceitful. Why? Because we're all born this way. We all receive this ultimately from our Parents and their parents and their parents traveling all the way back to Adam and Eve. We see the consequences of sin all about us. You see, this is where our flesh naturally operates from. 
Yet, by God's general grace, mankind has seen the horrors that result from living that way, and so there have been efforts made at trying to curtail those behaviors. I was a sociology major in college, and I was, became very familiar with classes like social problems, where they identified all kinds of social problems, and sure enough, they're social problems. And then out came all of their supposed solutions. The solutions never actually get to the heart of the matter because they don't deal with the heart. You see, the ultimate solution to our relationship problems will not be found in bigger lists of rules, nor will they be found in stricter sets of punishments. If all that we need to do is make a bigger list of rules with harsher punishments, we could solve all more problems. That would be maybe wonderful on some level. But the truth be told, it doesn't work. Ultimately, relationships require supernatural help to function properly. In a sermon entitled, What Every Community Needs, What Every Community Needs, Jesus' words here in Luke 17 provide us with at least four instructions that we need to consider when living in community. At least four instructions that I want us to see and we need to think about and contemplate and remember while living in community. Any human relationship can certainly benefit from the principles that Jesus is putting forward here. But we will only really experience relationships as God intended them to be as we look to the Lord Himself to change our hearts and minds. Community life can be riddled with offense and neglect and resentment and forgetfulness. Or it can be filled with encouragement and rebuke and forgiveness and trust. But every struggle can also become a benefit if handled rightly. So the solution is not to turn away from community and run to some sort of hermit lifestyle, but to engage in relationships with others by God's grace and for His glory. So let's take special note of what unique dangers are present in community and also the benefits that are opened up when living in community. And then we'll learn how to look to Jesus as the solution to what ails us and encouragement to persevere in living with one another. There are trials to living in close community with other people. But much good comes to those living in community. First, first point. Living in community presents the following. Each of these will have, there will be a negative and a positive. So the first is this. There's the possibility to offend and the opportunity to encourage the young. There's the possibility to offend, to be a stumbling block, to offend And there's also the opportunity to encourage the young, or as Jesus says here, the little ones. The little ones can either be offended or the little ones can be encouraged. Now, Jesus sets out from the very get-go here the inevitability of scandals. He's a realist. He tells his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Note, this is not a matter of if they come, but they will come. We know that Jesus can use if clauses because he uses them in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 6. If this happens, if this happens, if this happens. But here he says, this is inevitable. Literally it reads, it is impossible the scandalous not to come. That's how it reads in the Greek. It is impossible the scandalous not to come. It's an inevitable situation. People will be led into sin by the evil influence of others. This could be anything from ridiculing or persecuting someone to lying or cheating them to performing acts that cause a weaker brother to sin against his conscience and therefore against God to teaching heresy to bringing discredit on Christ because you've in an empty way professed to be a Christian and yet lived inconsistent to that claim. It could come in the form of enticing others to sexual sin. It could come in the form of enticing others to engage in juicy gossip. All of these things are possible. All of them are a place of stumbling. It is inevitable that places of stumbling will occur. That scandalous things will happen. No matter how optimistic you may be, it would be foolish to believe that trials on this earth will cease. There is a need for us to be realistic. Jesus says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So let's not be naive. Let's not be surprised when great scandals arise. It's amazing how some people will be so surprised when, oh, how scandalous that that's happened. Jesus says, it's inevitable. 
That's, that's the world we live in. Scandals are going to arise. Remember, this is a fallen world. It's filled with sinners. And there's an enemy, the devil, who's on the prowl. He's seeking someone to devour. What sort of attitude ought that place us in? Certainly not a flippant attitude, right? But a sober-minded one. If we knew right now in this room there was a lion over here to the side, and he was being held by the slenderest of threads, I'm sure all of us would exercise a lot of discernment as to how close we would get to that lion. Maybe some of us would be outside of this building before even giving an opportunity to get anywhere close to that lion. We would be sober-minded about it. What's sad is that so many people engage in this life not recognizing the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in and they're acting like civilians when they should be acting like soldiers. So what does Jesus tell us to do? Well, while it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will be here, it is therefore then reasonable that we take great care with ourselves. There is the need for self-watch. We are not above being a cause of stumbling to someone else. You know, next time you hear about some big scandal happening, instead of just sitting outside of it and just like judging these people, how about we consider, I too could fall. What's really the difference between me and that guy? That famous name, that whoever that person might be, who fell to some immorality and brought great scandal to the church. What's the difference between me and them? Oh, but by the grace of God go any of us. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. One of the most dangerous places you can be is in a place where you think that you're impervious to such assaults. The devil would love nothing more than that very situation. Certainly among the worst places to be in a position of pride or arrogance. The Pharisees were in just that sort of spot. Jesus said in Matthew 15.14, Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they'll both fall into the pit. He said in Matthew 23, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of God from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus warns similarly right here in Luke 17, Woe to him through whom the stumbling block comes. He says, stumbling blocks are inevitable, but woe to him through whom the stumbling happens. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than he caused one of these little ones to stumble. You see, living in community can mean that we can cause little ones to stumble. And Jesus says that that's the case would be better. The seriousness of this situation is such that it would be better if you just saw an untimely, violent death instead. Jesus explains a premature, horrific death should be preferred to the consequences that will follow for causing one young in faith to stumble. Think about the particular implications that this verse has for teachers. This is why I think James says, let not many of you become teachers for you'll incur a stricter judgment. The picture is graphic. The millstone Jesus is referring to is most likely the upper millstone that was used to grind grain and perhaps press olives. Usually the stone weighed a good deal more than a man, so having one put around your neck would certainly drag you down to the bottom of the sea if you were thrown into water. I don't know about you, but death by drowning is not my, uh, my desire. If I could pick how I shall die, how I shall exit this world, that doesn't sound like a particularly wonderful way to go, does it? But meanwhile, Jesus says, you'll prefer that to over the consequences that will follow should you be a cause of offense to one of these little ones. Certainly we identify with this principle, don't we? I mean... How about the last time you heard on the news that some adult did something heinous to a child? What is the natural thing that stirs in our soul? A desire for justice. Certainly if the person is actually guilty, right? If the person is actually guilty. Justice. We want to see severe judgment and retribution fall upon one who's found guilty. We become very zealous when things are perpetrated against infants or young children. It has something to do with their vulnerability. 
So everything inside of us cries out against such atrocities. Well, how much more should God care about the spiritual condition of His children? Why, Jesus says this is no small matter. You're not dealing with trifling things. These are matters of eternal consequence. How zealous our God must be regarding His children and thus His actions towards anyone who causes them spiritual harm. Stumbling blocks are inevitable, but woe to Him through whom they come. They're all around us. Be real. But pray that God protect you from being such a cause of offense. Jesus says in verse 3, Be on your guard. Otherwise translated, pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves, Jesus says. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but don't conclude, therefore, that they're no big deal. Severe judgment will fall upon those who function thusly, so be on your guard. Jesus said similarly to Judas in Luke 22, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me at the table, for indeed the Son of Man is going to as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Be warned. Now, community life, yes, provides a, a possibility that little ones be offended, be scandalized. But it also provides a context for the benefits of encouragement. You know, the end goal of church life is not to merely not be a stumbling block. The end of this is not just don't be a stumbling block. There's something positive to be gained throughout community. In fact, one of the most precious gifts available comes to those who are living in community with others. And it is this gift of encouragement. It is certainly true that God encourages us through the Scriptures. See, Romans 15.4 is a great example verse of that. But there is another source through whom God encourages His people, and it is through the use of other people. God uses people to encourage other people. The church is to distinctly manifest this. On several occasions in the book of Acts, Paul is said to provide encouragement to Christians, and then he also talks about receiving encouragement from the churches. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build up one another. In Titus 2, 3, and 4, older women are instructed to teach and encourage younger women. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Alright, Hebrews says, As we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, we should be all the more in community. Not less and less. All the more. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We had Ephesians 4 read this morning. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. I'm sure we could go around the room if I asked us to and say, can you recount a time when you were struggling and really down, and somebody came alongside of you and encouraged you. God used someone to bring encouragement to you. You see, if you isolate yourself away from Christian community, you isolate yourself away from encouragement that is provided through Christian community. It's provided here in a way that's distinctive to any other sort of group, any other sort of environment. It is here that we have the possibility to offend, but there's also the wonderful opportunity to encourage. Second, the context of relationship offers, number two, the possibility to neglect and the opportunity to rebuke the sinning. The sinning. There's the possibility to neglect the sinning, but there's also the opportunity to rebuke the sinning, those who are engaged in sin. See, in particular, the church is to have a joint vision for and pursuit of holiness. Jesus' instructions here to His disciples start with the self-watch. Watch yourselves. Be on your guard. But His words continue with a community watch. 
We're not only to be concerned about not leading others into sin, but we're supposed to encourage one another and to help one another whenever we see someone fall into sin. You see, holiness is both a personal project as well as a corporate project. We're in this together. We're to help one another. This is because holiness is the end for which God chose us. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in Him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14-16 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. And note, these are plural yous. Y'all be holy, for I am holy. All of you be holy in all of your behavior. This reminds me of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, it is not uncommon for people to look at these verses from Jesus. Maybe you've heard this in dialogue. But those especially who are engaging in sinful behavior, to quote the first part of Jesus' words here in Matthew 7, while neglecting the rest. Maybe you'll hear it this way. Judge not. Judge not. It's kind of like a popular bumper sticker theology. Judge not. But it fails to take into account the rest of what Jesus has to say in Matthew 7. Jesus' point is that those who take to judging need to be careful because the standard by which they measure other people will be applied to them. We've spoken about this before. We'd fail on our own standards. Isn't it interesting? We can rebuke somebody else and meanwhile ourselves be guilty of the very thing that we're rebuking. So he says, be wary. The very judgment you use will be judged against you. He goes on to then counsel them to examine themselves before scrutinizing others. Just as here in Luke 17, watch yourselves. Be on your guard. Make sure you're not a cause of stumbling. Make sure you're not a cause of offense. But then as we read to the very end of it in the last verse, verse 5 there, It finishes by explaining after a good self-examination, after you've removed the log from your eye, then what? Then you can help your brother. (laughs) Then help your brother with the speck in his eye. It's not now just shove that under the carpet and don't ever care about your brother. No, you can help your brother with the speck, but first remove the log. First examine yourself. Once we've removed the log from our own eye, then we can indeed help our brother with his speck. so sad when people will misconstrue the context of Jesus' words. The Bible is all about us exercising discernment and exercising an appropriate biblical judgment. But there's a big difference between that and being judgmental. Being legalistic. Jesus had very harsh words for the Pharisees who went around doing those things. But our tendency is to avoid conflict, isn't it? How many of you are just like, man, you wake up in the morning like, I just can't wait for there to be a conflict that develops so I can go in there and provide appropriate rebuke to those who need it. And if you do, I'm a little bit concerned for you. But I, I, I don't think any of us wake up with that kind of natural inclination. Jesus here is confronting, I think, a wrongful tendency in us. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. When faced with bringing correction to an erring brother, most of us avoid the confrontation. Because conflict is not easy. It's very, very difficult. But Jesus tells us that if our brother sins, we have a responsibility to rebuke him. Instead of brushing it under the rug and pretending it isn't there, we need to provide guidance and direction and helpful correction to our brother. Note this. This is the loving thing to do. It's not received as such often in this world. The loving thing to do is to bring a loving reproof must care enough to come alongside of a brother or sister who's in sin and provide rebuke, correction, training, and reproof. We must not stand by and let our brothers and sisters make decisions that run contrary to God's Word. Proverbs 27.6 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. There are some people that are all kisses and hugs, and there's just something behind it that doesn't just sit right. There's something disingenuous about it. Because someone who really loves you will be able to bring correction when it's needed too. And if you never hear any rebuke or correction, there there is cause to be concerned. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. How many of you had an occasion where maybe you were rebuked regarding something? And maybe even your initial reaction to it was to become very defensive and very upset. But upon later reflection, you were so thankful that person brought that to your attention. I'm sure hands would go up all around the room if I required it. We've all been there. But there's a tendency in us to avoid conflicts. And Jesus says when a brother, if a brother sins, rebuke him. Now, let me clarify quickly. Because there is a wrongful sort of rebuke. And there's a rightful sort of rebuke. There's a tremendous blessing that comes from loving rebuke. Rebuke must be done in love. as everything that we do. So Bible study, self-examination, and prayer are so vital to a proper rebuke. You want to make sure, number one, that your rebuke is founded in Scripture. <laughs> that there's scriptural reason for this statement to be made. It can't be just based on your preference or your opinions. It's fine that you hold your opinions. It's fine that you hold some preferences. It's fine to discuss those preferences and opinions. But it completely changes the way in which you interact with this person if it's not a matter of outright, downright sin that needs to be addressed. There are a great number of debatable issues that we can make, like Pharisees, into legalistic standards, and those are inappropriate to bring rebuke to someone regarding. So please don't go out of here going, oh man, anytime anyone does the least thing of stepping on my toes, I'm going to slap them. I'm going to get after them. Again, it needs to be a scriptural understanding. The rebuke has to be founded in Scripture, not personal preference. Secondly, you have to be first humbled and broken about your own sin. I think it's why Jesus said, remove the law from your own eye. Because once you've had that massive operation occur, it just changes you, doesn't it? I mean, when you see yourself as a sinner in need of grace, and now you bring rebuke, it changes the way you approach the person. It really does. You can tell someone who's broken about their own sin, and out of love comes to a brother or sister who's engaged in sin. Also, you need to have already asked God to guide your word and to prepare the one who sinned for receiving the rebuke. Asking God to, to take these words and to minister to this person's heart and soul. In that context, you need to be longing for their repentance. Longing that this would bring restoration. If you don't long for their restoration and for their repentance, you need to pray longer before talking to them. If this is just some mean-spirited, I want to lash out at them because they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them back. That's not this rebuke. And you need to ask God for forgiveness regarding your attitude of heart. And scriptural wisdom instructs our approach. You should take several factors into account. Among them being, consider the age and gender of the person. 1 Timothy 5 tells us, by the way, this is a sampling. I mean, you have to do a whole study of the Bible to to really get at this, but here's a couple samples. First Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. And do it in all purity. So we take into account their gender and their age. Because it does impact the way in which we approach them. You might need to take into account appropriate authorities as well. For example, if it's a child, it would be probably appropriate that you talk to the parents before you engage in any long sort of rebuke. We also take into account timing. There's an appropriate time and place for rebuke, right? And there are inappropriate times for rebuke. You can be right that you're rebuking, but wrong in the way, the timing in which you do it. Which brings up the other thing. Also, the appropriate form of the rebuke. I love this. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I love that last one. No matter where they are, be patient. Because we all need more of that, don't we? And we all want it now, God, right? 
Be patient with everyone. Admonish the unruly. They need a little bit stronger words. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. You see, we need to go gently, not judgmentally. We need to go humbly, not proudly. Affectionately, not harshly. Prayerfully, not impulsively. Graciously, not legalistically. Not only must our words be chosen wisely, but our manner must be chosen wisely. Another proverb, a wise man makes knowledge acceptable. A wise man makes knowledge acceptable. What does that mean? It means that you're going to use proper discernment because you want them to receive what you have to say. So you're going to contemplate this. You're going to pray through this. You're going to read Scripture regarding it. And guys, this is the deal. Why do so many people then avoid conflict? For this reason. It involves a whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of prayer and a whole lot of discernment. And it's a lot of times it's a lot easier to just let it go and just not worry about it. But then we help no one. By the way, be careful. There are a whole lot of things that we might be peeved by that we just need to let go. We need to get over ourselves. So please don't go home and like every little thing you see in your spouse now, you're like, ah, I need to bring a rebuke to that. No, we need to get over ourselves and stop being so selfish. But there is a very genuine sense in which when sin really does arise, we need to help one another. And in this tender, loving, gracious manner, bring it up with one another. Talk it through. Pray with one another. Third, community life allows for the possibility to resent, but the opportunity to forgive. There's the possibility you might resent the one repenting, but there's also the opportunity to forgive the one repenting. Jesus says if he repents, forgive him. There's a danger of bitterness that we all struggle with. One of the most destructive things to a community's unity is a failure to forgive one another of our sins. To hold on to one another's sins is, assure, is sure to land us in a very bitter and horrible place. You guys realize that even a righteous anger can degenerate into an unrighteous bitterness if not handled appropriately in a timely fashion. This is why Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, yet do not sin. Look at this. Be angry, yet do not sin. So, there is an anger that is not sin. Right? Be angry, yet do not sin. And then he goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. So there's an anger that is not sin, but if the sun goes down on your anger, there's the possibility that the devil uses an opportunity to degenerate it into something else. To drive in a wedge. The devil is prowling. He's looking for opportunities to destroy Christian community. And certainly he can affect devastating results by bringing a scandal into the church. But please note this. A scandal in and of itself is temporary. It's temporary. Yeah, it shakes up things. It causes a whole lot of trouble. We need to be prayerful and vigilant and wary against such things. And having said that, should the scandal get lodged as a long-term bitterness in someone, such a situation, I believe, is particularly sweet to the devil's aims. So I was thinking through this I'm listening to screw tape letters in the car, and it sounded just like the sort of thing that screw tape would be counseling the younger demon and how to cause problems and dissensions in the church. Yeah, cause a scandal to come up to really shake things up, but then let that scandal sink deep into people's hearts, where then they become bitter and resentful towards one another and will not forgive. A much longer consequence, much longer lasting horrible situation in the church body. Listen again to Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Listen, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So how do we put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice? How do we instead be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving? I mean, that sounds wonderful, right? Put away all the bad stuff. Take on all the good stuff. How does this happen? The answer is given there at the end of Ephesians 4. 
It's found in looking to what Christ has done for us. More on that in just a moment. You see, it's here that we see the intention of rebuke. Jesus immediately follows up the charge that we rebuke a brother who sins with the exhortation that as soon as he repents, what do we do? We forgive. We forgive. Which means this. If you bring the rebuke and you're not already willing to forgive them, you need to get that straightened out first. Because it's the moment they repent, what are you in, what are you called to do? Forgive. And if you don't, guess what that is? It's sin. And now you should be rebuked for your unforgiveness. Which they need to be ready to forgive you for your... This is a wonderful demonstration of the purpose of the rebuke in the first place. Rebuke that's rightly done is aimed at the repentance and restoration of the individual being rebuked. It's not a cold-hearted, irritable, vengeful thing bent on holding a grudge. That is not a rebuke that the Bible calls us to. I'm really mad at you. I don't like you at all. I'm going to hold on to this and I want you to know about it. That rebuke is in need of repentance. When repentance is manifest, so must be forgiveness. Forgiveness should be as wide and as deep as the repentance is. Now, you cannot forgive someone who does not desire it or seek it. In fact, have you tried this before? Maybe you have. I know. I used to do this all the time as a kid. I learned real quick. You can use a scriptural terminology and use it to stab people. I love doing that with my brother or somebody else. You know, you say something like, hey, you did all this to me, and I forgive you. Right? So you end up using those words, I forgive you, as actually an insult to try to just raise the heat. What usually happens in that situation is you just infuriate the individual for as far as they're concerned, they haven't done anything wrong. To forgive me implies I've done something wrong. But if I don't think I've done anything wrong, then you saying that you forgive me that's more insulting than it is helpful. Jesus, therefore, says here, if they repent, forgive them. Now, meanwhile, does that mean that if they don't repent, that then we sit around and just boil over this thing? No. It's important that you be ready and willing to forgive with or without repentance being present. This is how we ensure that the sun does not go down on our anger, right? You're called to be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Well, how do you deal with that if the person doesn't repent? You do it by being willing, being ready to forgive. There are many cases where a person maybe never seeks forgiveness or restoration. And in such cases, all you can do is to live at peace with all men as much as depends on you. Being ready to extend forgiveness at the moment that repentance arises. You stand at the ready. Note that in verse 4, Jesus makes it more personal. He says, if he sins against you. So now we move from sin in general to sin against yourself. Isn't it interesting? You always talk about this in a hypothetical situation, but when it comes personal, it becomes kind of a little bit different. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should forgive so-and-so for what they did to you. But then all of a sudden, it becomes yourself. He says, should they do this against you? If you've been personally offended... It's easy to look at other people's contexts and instruct them to, be give, to give forgiveness. Yet, when we're personally offended, we try to clinch our fists and hold on to offenses. Sometimes for years and years. Some people live in this bitter, awful place. The sad thing about it is it affects you more than anyone else. A person who's bitter, they're just destroying themselves. They're finding the freedom that comes with being willing to forgive. Notice to what length we should go to forgive. Jesus says, if a brother sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you saying, I repent, what are you supposed to do? Forgive him. Now, now let's let that sink in for just a minute. Imagine I come up to Bryn, I punch him in the face, and then I would go down to the floor after that. Um, no, but being a loving, gracious man, he just turns the other cheek, right? I, I repent, and I punch him again, and I repent, and I punch him again, and I... We did this seven times in one day. What's Britain called to do? Forgive me. Leon Morris said this. From the world's point of view, a sevenfold repetition of an offense in one day must cast doubt on the genuineness of the sinner's repentance. Listen what he says. But that is not the believer's business. His business isn't to determine whether or not it's sincere. His business is to what? Forgive. You know Jesus doesn't say here? If you consider their repentance to be sincere, what does it say? If he says, I repent, what do you do? Forgive him.
Cyril of Alexandria explained that we should do the following. Imitate those whose business is to heal our body diseases and who do not care for a sick, mass, sick person only once or twice, but just as often as he happens to become ill. Can you imagine a doctor if you came to the office and you said, man, I've got a horrible sore throat. Can you help me with this? And he's like, well, yes, you've been in here seven times over the last six months and no, I don't think I'm going to help you anymore. What kind of doctor is that? Provide the guy with some medicine. Help him out. Similarly, if one of our brothers comes up to us and repents seven times in a day, what are we to do? Do the work of the physician and forgive him. Forgive him. See, the forgiveness we extend is to know no limits. Fourth and lastly, human communities have provided the possibility to forget and the opportunity to trust the servant king. We're provided the opportunity to trust or the possibility to forget the servant king. How did Jesus' words in this passage hit you? A lot of people have seen these as just kind of a disconnected set of sayings. I think there's more connection here than some people give them. But regardless, you get this set of sayings. How do they, how do they hit you? He's commanding us to be vigilant regarding our own lives to ensure that we don't become an occasion for tripping other people, other young ones in particular. We're to be ready to provide truthful, loving rebuke to those who sin, and we're to extend limitless forgiveness to those who repent. Now, let me ask you the question. Do you feel up to that task? Well, if not, you're not alone. The apostles said to Jesus, increase our faith. Increase our faith, Jesus. And the sort of that response kind of seems humorous to me. It amounts to saying, there's no way we can live this way. No one lives this way. You're going to have to give us something more to work with here, Jesus. The words that they make here could even be handled as an objection to the whole enterprise. No, Jesus, what you're describing is flatly impossible. And now, while this response falters, and we'll see where it falters in just a minute from Jesus' words, there's at least one level of it which is completely appropriate because all of us, just like the apostles, need to admit our need. None of us actually lives that way from the flesh. None of us do. We truly are incapable of living in community with one another apart from God's enablement. But it, as Jesus goes on to explain, our need is not more faith quantitatively. Because even a mustard seed of faith, Jesus says, would be sufficient to do the impossible. In this case... He pictures the uprooting of a mulberry tree, a tree known by the ancients as one that had an extensive root system that could permit the tree to live as long as 600 years. Taking one of these massive trees, uprooting it, and planting it in the sea. In another place, Jesus said that that same mustard seed of faith could speak to a mountain and move it. The, case, the point in both cases is that the smallest genuine faith in God can do the humanly impossible. That's the point. Not, it's not the quantity of our faith, but the quality of our faith which is most important. Or better said, it's the object of our faith that is crucial. What, or better, who we trust is the important thing. The apostles don't need more faith. They need to put the faith that God provides them into action. They don't need to drum up more trusting power within themselves, but rest in the power of God to bring to pass what He commands. Nothing is impossible to faith. Genuine faith can accomplish what experience and reason and probability would deny if exercised within God's will. And so Jesus then ends this section with an analogy. Opportunity for us to remember our place. The other possible way of responding to Jesus' words is to think, okay, well, I've been keeping those pretty good. Or maybe pretty well. And as a result, now God has been placed into my debt. Look at how good I'm doing, God. I say it again. How well I'm doing, God. This is certainly the Pharisaic mindset, right? This is how the Pharisees were operating. So Jesus asks about how a master and a slave relate to one another at the end of a day's work. The day has come to a close. And it is the slave who is still on duty, attending to the master's supper before eating himself. When everything is done, the slave does not expect rewards or even so much as a word of thanks, for he had merely done what he was supposed to do. There are no kudos given for fulfilling one's job responsibilities, 
For in order to get those, you have to go above and beyond the call of duty. But a slave can never go above and beyond the call of duty. Why? Because everything he has and everything he is is already required. No extras for you. No bonus points. You're just merely doing what you've been required to do. And so it is with us. Our very lives are the Lord's property. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify the Lord in everything that we say and everything that we do. From the very beginning of our walk with Christ, we had to renounce all self-righteousness and cling only to the righteousness that's found in Christ. Because even our righteous deeds are filthy rags in God's sight. They're all polluted by sin. At our best, we only do our duty. And whatever good we do is only owing to Christ in us. All our good deeds are done as a result of God's grace operating in us. And still we notice countless imperfections in all of our actions. So how preposterous that we might boast in ourselves. All we have, we have received. All we are, we owe to God's grace. Galatians 3.3 Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 1 Corinthians 4.7 Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, not one of our best works or all of our good works thrown together give us a right to being in heaven. We have no merit in ourselves. Even if we gave God perfect obedience, which none of us has, we would only be giving God what He is deserving of. I think this uh, analogy also reminds us that there is no off time from the gospel. There is no retirement from the gospel. When we get done with a hard day's work out in the field, you know, either watching the sheep or plowing the ground, when we come into the house, we don't sit down, we continue to work. See, God is not beholden to us for any amount of obedience that we render unto Him. You cannot put God into your debt. No one gets to heaven by putting God into their debt because you can never do it. You are completely owing to God everything you are and everything you have. And what we have done as sinners is spit in His face. We've been rebels. It's only by God's grace that we can be what we are now. We need to remember that we who are Christians are all fellow servants of a common master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of us has been forgiven a massive debt, a debt we could never pay. And all of us have have failed to give Jesus Christ what He is truly deserving of. We are all, as the statement here, unprofitable servants. So absurd that we should be proud and arrogant. And note how this intersects with everything we've just done. A person who is proud and arrogant will be a stumbling block to others. A person who is proud and arrogant will we'll not bring a loving rebuke to others. A person who's proud and arrogant will hold on to bitterness over the things, ways in which he's been offended. A person who's been broken and humbled, who's been saved by the grace of God, is the one who recognized by the grace of God, go I. I need to stay on my knees and ask that the Lord would prevent me from being a stumbling block to others. It's also the one who will bring a loving rebuke to others, recognizing that he himself had to have a log pulled out of his eyes, and now I can help others with their pursuit of holiness. He's also the individual who will have, be gracious in forgiving Because he recognizes just how much of a sinner he is and how much he's been forgiven. At the heart of unforgiveness, friends, is a failure to recognize just how much you have been forgiven. This is where we come to a conclusion. What we need in community, the, the chief need that we have is to remember what Jesus has done. Ultimately, what we need is to remember our King. And I said here, our servant King. Because of all the odd things in the world, our King, our Lord, our Master came to serve. The reason our forgiveness is to know no limits is because that is the manner in which we have been forgiven. There's no limit to our Savior's love for us. He can make the foulest clean. His blood can wash away the dirtiest spot. His sacrifice was sufficient for the chief of sinners. He doesn't only forgive us should we sin seven times in a day or 70 times seven times in a day. He forgives us and forgives us and forgives us again. Our sin cannot outpace Jesus' ability to forgive. 
So how dare we not forgive others? That's why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass or are indebted to us. Those who have experienced the forgiveness of Christ and who remember that forgiveness cannot hold on to grudges and bitterness towards others. How is this possible? How can Jesus forgive us and forgive us and forgive us again? How is this possible and and God maintain His justice and His righteousness? Well, interestingly enough, I want to conclude where we started. It's in looking at the worst scandal ever committed that we have to look. We have to look at the worst scandal ever perpetrated on earth. The scandal of the cross. You see, at the cross, the greatest offense was perpetrated. The spotless, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was subjected to mockery and scorn, to torture and pain, to humiliation and death. And yet it is there, at the most scandalous moment in history, that we see our Lord, our servant King, Jesus Christ, crying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus did not merely let sin go, but He actually paid the price for it. He laid down His life as a ransom in our place. He endured the wrath of God on our account. The way we learn to forgive is by looking to Jesus and His cross. The cross fully acknowledges the sinfulness of sin. That's why He died. Sin must be judged. Justice must be paid. It fully acknowledges the sinfulness of sin. They would go all the way to the place where God would provide His own Son as a substitute, as a sacrifice. In order for the wrath and curse of God to be paid for. But not only this, but it's at the cross that sin is atoned for. It provides a way for sinners to be forgiven and restored. And when we find our own forgiveness, we're also then provided with grace to forgive others. You see... You don't merely look to Jesus as a moral exemplar and as someone whose example is worthy of imitation. Certainly, his example is worthy of imitation. And certainly, he is the moral exemplar. He was perfect in all of his dealings. But we look to Jesus not just merely as an example, albeit that he's the perfect example. We look to him as the very means of forgiveness. He accomplished redemption. He forgives sinners. Anyone who will call upon his name will be saved. So how can we not forgive others when we have been forgiven of a debt we could never pay? And then the gospel becomes even more scandalous. Ultimately, we who rightly call ourselves unprofitable servants are treated unlike we actually deserve. Because we who are in Christ are made sons and daughters of God. And we're invited to His banquet table. When we find What we find when we surrender to the grace of God is that what Jesus has done... For us, what a master never did. What does the master do? He comes in, he sits down, we serve him. But what did Jesus do? He came in the house and he serves us. He explains himself in Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he, speaking of the master, will, will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table. He will come up and wait upon them. He said in Luke 22, 27. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am one among you who serves. How is it possible for an unprofitable servant to be welcomed into that banquet table one day? Because there was a perfect, profitable servant that went before us who laid down his life as a ransom for many. His worthiness, his perfect obedience to God the Father's will, his coming to earth, his righteous life, his sacrificial, voluntary, substitutionary death, and his powerful resurrection accomplishes what none of us could. And wondrously, he now welcomes us to sit down and taste the banquet that he has prepared and that he has secured for us. Spurgeon remarked, Have courage. You are not serving a hard master after all. And though you very properly call yourself an unprofitable servant, be of good cheer. For a gentler verdict shall be pronounced upon you ere long. You are not your own judge, either for good or ill. Another judge is at the door. And when he cometh, 
He will think better of you than your self-abasement permits you to think of yourself. He will judge you by the rule of grace and not by law. Praise the Lord. What a community we who are Christians have been brought into. It is certainly nothing which we could ever call our just deserves, but only a testimony to God's amazing grace. That in the end is the need of every community. In Jesus, we find grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are a needy people. We're needy individually. We are needy corporately. And what we need is Jesus. We need more contemplation of Him. More consideration of the value of His cross, of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Thank you for the redemption that is accomplished in Him. We thank you that His work is finished. Thank you, Lord, that it is not up to us to effect this change because we could never do it. We're in need of Your grace. We're dependent upon You. We're thankful that by Your grace, You are changing us. You are transforming us. And You've given us the privilege of living in community with one another. It is hard work, Lord. There are times when we will, being sinners, rub each other the wrong way. We will hurt one another's feelings. There will be misunderstandings. These things will arise. But meanwhile, we're thankful that by Your grace, because we have been forgiven, we can also forgive one another, no matter what the offense. And Lord, we ask that You would then bring about a restoration in our relationships. Grow us closer to one another through the conflicts. What the devil means for ill, may you use for your glory. May you knit us tighter together as a result of these, of these events. And Lord, guard us from scandals. None of us are in a place where we're impervious to the attacks and temptations of the devil. Make us sober-minded. Make us dependent and prayerful. Humble. Guard us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Lord, may you do all of this for the glory of your great name. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.